Open your Bibles, please, to Isaiah chapter 52. Isaiah chapter 52. The Lord convicted me in a progressive way through Wednesday evening to leave our study of Second Peter and to take up for one Lord's Day this subject of God being the potter, we being the clay, and the rest of the universe being the clay along with us. And he has led me, and though it's hard for me to do things this way sometimes, is not to have all the I's to dot and T's to cross and Q's of the subject of the sovereignty of God, but to share with you passages of Scripture that I hope will lift up your hearts and minds and give you everything from peace and contentment to humility and submission, to joy and glorying in this great God who is our Father. Wherever we read in Scripture, we read about His sovereignty. There is no other attribute that makes Him God as much as His sovereignty. He doesn't have to be a holy God, and He could still be a God. Holiness is incredibly important in the Bible, But His sovereignty is what makes Him God in that He has the supreme rule over the universe and does according to His own will among the host of heaven and the inhabitants of the earth. Whether it's the first verse in the Bible which tells us that there is a great first cause to everything, in the beginning, God. That's the first cause and that sovereignty there. Or the end of the Bible, even so come quickly, Lord Jesus, What is He coming for? To burn up the earth and to take a chosen people to Himself that were saved by the divine choice of imputation. It is sovereignty from beginning to end. And we just want to glory in Thee, Heavenly Father, this day. Bless us and our hearts and our minds to be filled with the revelation of your glorious sovereign dominion over the universe. I open with this verse about the preaching of the gospel. Isaiah 52 and verse 7. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him that bringeth good tidings, that publisheth peace, that bringeth good tidings of good, that publisheth salvation, that saith unto Zion, Thy God reigneth. With an exclamation point. This is the preaching of the gospel. This is a large part of the preaching of the gospel is to preach, Thy God reigneth. Now though this preacher is addressing an audience It is not a plural pronoun that is used. It is thy God reigneth. Because he is our individual God, creator, father, savior, and Lord. So it says thy God reigneth. The good tidings of glad things include the publishing of peace and the publishing of salvation. Of course, from a New Testament perspective, we love the peace that has been made with God and the salvation that we have in Christ Jesus. But in the book of Isaiah, there were other salvations and other peace 
that were very important as well, and that was the deliverance of the nation of Israel from its enemies. And that was publishing peace and publishing salvation because God reigned. They needed to be saved from Babylon. Before that, they needed to be saved from Assyria. And God did deliver them from those enemies and delivered them mightily by His choice for His own people. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of Him that bringeth good tidings. What are the good tidings? Thy God reigneth with an exclamation point that bringeth good tidings of good. What is a good tiding of good? Thy God reigneth. Thy God reigneth. He is on His throne. There is nothing happening in this world confusing Him, giving Him difficulty, surprising Him, resisting Him, or that can even question Him. Thy God reigneth. He reigns in our families. He reigns in our nation. He reigns in our church. He reigns in our health. He reigns in our finances. He reigns in the weather outside right now. He reigns. He reigns in sending rains. So we have rain outside today to water the earth because He chose to send rain. I want you to delight in the text. Thy God reigneth. There is no other God. He has no competitor. He has no peer. No one can question Him. He's not resisted. There's no limit to His power. He exercises His own will, and He doeth according to His will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And everything He does is according to His will. Our God is in the heavens. He hath done whatsoever He hath pleased. And we love the Heavenly Father. Bless us this day. Thy God reigneth. That's simple. But it is a profound statement that we ought to remember every day. There is more information thrown at us every day than anyone else has ever had to deal with, even a decade ago, by a long distance. When that information bombards us about what is taking place in Greenville or Columbia or in Washington, D.C., or New York, or anywhere else in the world, thy God reigneth. When we read about ISIS, or we have our own troubles, or things happen at your place of employment, or things happen in your family or my family, thy God reigneth. And we let nothing move us. We are fixed. I shall not be greatly moved. David said, then as he continued to encourage himself in the Lord in a particular psalm, he said, I shall not be moved. He took the, the adjective, the adverb out greatly, and I will not be moved at all. Thy God reigneth. Let's turn to Job chapter 36. Job 36. We could easily spend this service and next on Job 36, but we need to quickly just point out a couple of things and move on. I hope you enjoyed reading it last evening in your preparation. There was a time in my life around 19 years of age when I had some friends chosen by God for me because they were roommates at the world's most unusual university. And we would sit around and have contests for the glory of God of who could find the passage that lifted up God the highest and moved us the most. And it was a great time. 
And I want us as a church to be a church like that in that we want to share passages of Scripture like that to stir each other up and encourage each other in the Lord. When it says in Malachi 3, 15 and 16, that those that feared the Lord spake often one to another, that is a subject that the Bible is filled with. And we should want to speak to each other about passages that truly lift Him up in His greatness. And you know, there is, there is no loser in a contest where you're raising Scriptures for each other. You know, as I told a couple of young men this morning, if I came up with a passage and I presented to them and we all rejoiced and, you know, Lord, you're great and greatly to be praised and your greatness is unsearchable. And then the next young man brought up a passage that in our esteem was better than the one we had just given. Who loses? No one loses. The God of glory wins. And we win for thinking upon those things. I just want to share passages with you today. I don't want to go to the five phases of salvation, the seven proofs of unconditional eternal life. I don't want to talk to you about superlapsarianism, sublapsarianism, or infralapsarianism. I don't want to talk to you about double predestination and how the foreknowledge of God works with the sovereignty of God. I don't want to deal with any of that. I've dealt with it before. There's 21 pages, single-spaced, entitled, The Dominion of God, that you can go to for that. I just want to share Scripture with you, and I have prayed, and I have prepared in an unusual way, that God the Holy Spirit will speak to your heart, that you will delight in some of these passages, or find one of them to embrace and take with you, maybe memorize part of it, to rejoice in the greatness of our God. In Job... Chapter 36, Elihu is speaking. There are five men in the book of Job. There is Job, of course. Then there are his three pitiful friends, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. Then there is a young man that didn't speak until chapter 32, and he corrects Job. And he is right, and he is the only one in the book that knows what is going on. He speaks for several chapters from 32 through 39, from through 37, excuse me, then God takes up in 38 and uh, speaks to Job as well. We just want to rejoice in some of the things that were said. Verse 2 of Job 36, suffer me a little, and I will show thee that I have yet to speak on God's behalf. Here's Elihu telling these four aged wise men, maybe the four wisest men on earth at the time, Elihu tells them, suffer me a little. I will show thee that I have yet to speak on God's behalf. These chapters previously wasn't enough. My wine bottle is not yet spent. Remember? He felt like he was wine bottled up, about to explode in chapter 32. And so he says, I have more, I want to say, on God's behalf. And I hope, the reason I'm using the verse is I hope that we always want to say more on God's behalf. That we're never content or sufficed that we have said all that should be said about God. He says in verse 3, I will fetch my knowledge from afar and will ascribe righteousness to my maker. For truly my words shall not be false. He that is perfect in knowledge is with thee. And he's speaking about himself. Behold, God is mighty and despiseth not any, he is mighty in strength and wisdom. 
That means he is all powerful and can do whatever he wants with you, Job. And he doesn't despise any man without a just cause. Whatever he's doing to you, he's fully justified in doing. Now remember, Job had it right in the beginning of this book. Let's go back to Job chapter 1. Job chapter 1. And see, it's, it's places like this that we look at and we see the response of a godly man to severe adversity. When we have severe adversity in our lives, we want to be like Job. Job was delivered from his adversity eventually once Elihu and God corrected him. Look at verses 20 through 22. Job's lost everything except his health. Everything. Job 1.20 Then Job arose and rent his mantle and shaved his head and fell down upon the ground and worshipped. That's what we want to do right now in our hearts and minds. And here's how he worshipped. He said, Naked came I out of my mother's womb, and naked shall I return thither. The Lord gave, and the Lord hath taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job sinned not, nor charged God foolishly. Amen and amen. Who was in charge of all the adversity that came into Job's life? God knew who was in charge, and the devil knew who was in charge, and Elihu knew who was in charge. Verse 3 of chapter 2, The Lord said unto Satan, Hast thou considered my servant Job, that there is none like him in the earth, a perfect and an upright man, one that feareth God and escheweth evil, and still he holdeth fast his integrity, although thou movest me against him to destroy him without cause? Now here God is admitting that he was the one moving against Job. Because God is so sovereign over all the rational and operating creatures and secondary causes in the world that there is a sense in which He was the one moving against Job, though it was also the devil involved. That is why, when we had Genesis chapter 45 read to us earlier, when Joseph told his brethren, You didn't send me to Egypt, God sent me to Egypt. And we should be able to understand the first cause, the overriding God's sovereign cause, using the sinful actions of his ten brothers sent him to Egypt. But God is in charge. And the devil knew that God was in charge because just a couple verses later, verse 5, put forth thine hand now and touch his bone and his flesh. See, the devil is saying, you're going to have to do it because God is in charge of the devil. And he will curse thee to thy face. And the Lord said unto Satan, Behold, he is in thine hand, but save his life. Notice, the devil says, It's your hand, God. God says, Satan, it's your hand. Now I have been ridiculed by men who tried to train me on this subject by telling me the doctrine that you're preaching is like a hand on a glove. Or a glove on a hand. Excuse me. Your doctrine that you're teaching reduces us to puppets and we're like a glove on a hand. And I say thank you very much for the confirmation of the doctrine. 
Because in Job chapter 2, God's hand and Satan's hand are the same. It's the hand that is operating against Job because Satan can't do anything against Job without God. And both God knows that and Satan knows that. Why don't you know it? That is sovereign power. You know what I've said about the devil in the past because of what we have recorded for us in the New Testament. He has to ask permission from our God that reigns to enter into pigs. And so when he enters into pigs, who entered into the pigs? Who caused the pigs to violently run down a steep place and drown themselves in the sea? Is it hard for you to figure that out? It's God that made that choice. He simply used the active agent and means of the devil. God is in charge of all rational creatures, irrational creatures, inanimate matter, and everything else in the universe, and none of them do anything outside His reign and will. He doeth according to His will, and they do according to His will. And so we have that in Job chapter 1. Let's go back to Job 36. Job 36. You know, he speaks about the righteous and how he takes care of them. In verses 6 through 10, he says in verse 11, and this ought to motivate you and encourage you, if they obey and serve him, they shall spend their days in prosperity and their years in pleasures. Let's obey and serve him. If the text says that, let's obey and serve him. But if they obey not, then they shall perish by the sword and they shall die without knowledge. And so he goes on and describes what he'll do to the hypocrites. Now remember, Elihu comes to Job and says, you better humble yourself and you better do it sooner than later. Because look at verses 16 through 18. Even so, the way that God deals with the righteous and with hypocrites, even so would He have removed thee out of the strait into a broad place where there is no straightness. This is Elihu talking to Job and the straightness is his restricted life that had lost all of its pleasure, blessing, and prosperity. This is Elihu telling Job that your trial would be over by now if you would have got the lesson on time. Even so, would he, God, would have removed thee, Job, out of the straight, your restricted life right now, into a broad place. See, that's the op, you know, that's just, those are Jesus' words from Matthew chapter 7. The broad way versus the straight gate. Where there is no straightness, and that which should be set on thy table should be full of fatness. You should be back enjoying the lifestyles of the rich and famous. But, look at verse 17, thou hast fulfilled the judgment of the wicked. You have fulfilled what God does against the wicked, cutting them off and and killing them. Verse 14, and letting them be above the unclean, because you're talking like them, Job. Judgment and justice take hold on thee. What was originally a trial is now God's chastening judgment on you. Because there is wrath, beware lest he take thee away with his stroke, then a great ransom cannot deliver thee. Wow, that's the sovereignty of God who started out with a trial on Job, but Job wasn't responding to it well in chapters 3 through 31. And so we have these words of warning from Elihu. Let us humble ourselves before this great God, embrace Him, and trust Him for whatever He does in our lives. 
Now, the, the explanation for what was happening to Job here is wrath and judgment and justice in verses 17 and 18. In verse 5, the explanation is God is mighty. But let's go back to chapter 33 and see the answer to the whole book given to us in five words. This is a very clear description of what happened to Job in five words. This is the answer key to the book of Job. Job 33.12, Elihu is speaking. Behold, Job, in this thou art not just. I will answer thee that God is greater than man. That is the answer to the book. God is greater than man. He can do whatever He wants to do to you, Job. Why? Notice the consequences. Why dost thou strive against Him? Why are you fighting Him? Why are you arguing against Him? Why are you questioning? Why are you getting belligerent? Why are you getting bitter? Why dost thou strive against Him? For He giveth not account of any of His matters. Praise the Lord! I love worshiping a God like that. He doesn't give account of any of His matters. That is our God. Thy God reigneth. He does whatever He wants to. You better not be striving against Him, or God, instead of trying you, is going to come with judgment, justice, and wrath. And He doesn't give an account of any of His matters. Men think today that God needs to give them an account of how their free will matches up with the sovereignty of God. The problem is, they don't have a free will. If there was ever a free will in a human being, it was in Adam before the fall. Since the fall, something died. What do you think it was? Do you think his will stayed alive toward God? The Bible teaches the opposite, that his free will is dead. If these little people would shut up for a second and submit themselves to the Bible, God doesn't even have a free will. And when we're glorified, we're going to be like God without a free will. We'll be free to righteousness, but we will not be able to sin. God can't sin. God can't choose to sin because of His holiness. His will isn't free. Why does everybody want this thing called freedom? Look what freedom has got us in America. A bunch of blasphemers that can have their little blogs and can be editors of newspapers and say anything they want to about the God of heaven, the Bible, Bible preachers, or our civil rulers, or anyone else that so fits their fancy. And now we've got social media where even the little people that couldn't afford a a blog, are able to post it on their Facebook accounts or tweet it, twixt it, or twatter it. Shut up. God is in His holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before Him. Except to open our mouths in praise to the Most High. Why dost thou strive against Him, Job? Come back to Job 22. Job 22. I don't want to be free. I want God to hedge me up, confine me in, and make me to go in the way of His commandments and not let me go, not let me wander out of the way of understanding at all. I want to be free only to righteousness. 
And I want to be free from sin to righteousness. That's real freedom. That's called liberty in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 17 and 18. That's real liberty. It's not letting people blow off steam against their rulers. Job 22 and verse 21. Acquaint now thyself with him and be at peace, thereby good shall come unto thee. That's why I'm preaching it this morning. That verse right there. Acquaint now thyself with him and be at peace, thereby good shall come unto thee. So let's get acquainted with him. That's what we're doing. We want to be acquainted with the Most High God. Deuteronomy 32. Deuteronomy 32. I almost wish that you had ten squares of cardboard with numbers one through ten like the judges for certain Olympic events. And we could read a passage and I would be able to tell how that particular passage affected your individual heart because you would stick up eight. You know, at different times, different passages strike us different ways because God's Word is inexhaustible. And God the Holy Spirit is doing different things at different times with the same words to us given our differing circumstances. And I, and I love that about the Word of God. It is inexhaustible. And it's able to speak to our souls at all times with different verses. And, we've, and there's verses that we've read so many times and we read them one more time. Oh Lord, that is beautiful. Here we go in Deuteronomy chapter 32, the song of Moses. And a few words he has to say to Israel. Now, these, some of these readings are going to be a little lengthy. Will that pain you? Please don't let it pain you. Embrace these words as I read them to you, beginning at verse 26. Because Israel, he knew they were going to be wicked, here's God speaking of what he would do to them. Deuteronomy 32, 26. I said... I would scatter them into corners. I would make the remembrance of them to cease from among men. Were it not that I feared the wrath of the enemy, lest their adversaries should behave themselves strangely, and lest they should say, Our hand is high, and the Lord hath not done all this. For they are a nation void of counsel, neither is there any understanding in them. Oh, that they were wise, that they understood this, that they would consider their latter end. How should one chase a thousand and two put ten thousand to flight except their rock had sold them and the Lord had shut them up? For their rock is not as our rock, even our enemies themselves being judges. For their vine is of the vine of Sodom and of the fields of Gomorrah. Their grapes are grapes of gall. Their clusters are bitter. Their wine is the poison of dragons and the cruel venom of asps. Is not this laid up in store with me and sealed up among my treasures? To me belongeth vengeance and recompense. Their foot shall slide in due time. For the day of their calamity is at hand and the things that shall come upon them make haste. For the Lord shall judge His people and repent Himself for His servants when He seeth that their power is gone and there is none shut up or left. And He shall say, Where are their gods? Their rock in whom they trusted. 
which did eat the fat of their sacrifices and drank the wine of their drink offerings. Let them rise up and help you and be your protection. See now that I, even I, am He, and there is no God with me. I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal. Neither is there any that can deliver out of my hand. For I lift up my hand to heaven and say, I live forever. If I whet my glittering sword and mine hand take hold on judgment, I will render vengeance to mine enemies and will reward them that hate me. I will make mine arrows drunk with blood and my sword shall devour flesh and that with the blood of the slain and of the captives from the beginning of revenges upon the enemy. Rejoice, O ye nations, with his people, for he will avenge the blood of his servants and will render vengeance to his adversaries and will be merciful unto his land and to his people. Amen and amen. Amen. This is a song. Do you like this sweet song? Arrows drunk with the blood of adversaries and enemies. Did you notice in the very beginning... God said, I will scatter them into corners. This is the scattering of Israel that occurred on a number of occasions. He said, I would scatter them into the corners and nobody would ever remember them. And they would cease from among men, verse 27, except for the fact that if I do that, some of my enemies in this world, some of those people that think they're philosophers and can reason about historical events, they're going to come to the conclusion and they're going to be acting strangely They're going to come to this strange conclusion, our hand is high, and it's not God that has done this. And God said, because that's a possibility of happening, because men might get the idea that they were able to defeat my nation of Israel, I won't do it quite that way. Then he goes on to explain, now when he says in verse 30, how should one chase a thousand? If you're reading too fast, do you know what you're going to think? that this is describing God's enablement of Israelites for one of them to chase a thousand. That is not what is being discussed here. This is one enemy chasing a thousand Israelites. They should be asking, how should one chase a thousand and two Canaanites or Philistines or Babylonians put 10,000 Israelites to flight except their rock had sold them? Except the rock of Israel had sold them into slavery. Don't you love verse 31? For their rock, that is the God of the Assyrians, Nisroch, that is the God of the Babylonians, Bel and Nebo, that is the gods of the Philistines, Dagon. For their rock is not as our rock, even our enemies themselves being judges. Praise the Lord! God has done enough things in the world that the enemies of God who worshipped idols knew that the gods of the Israelites were mighty. They knew that their rock was not like our rock. When the Ark of the Covenant was taken foolishly and profanely into battle in 1 Samuel 5, and there was a shout in the camp of Israel to have that little golden box out there where it didn't belong, and the shout was so great it echoed across the land, and the Philistines got news from their recon squads that the Ark of the Covenant was among the army, They said, how shall we fight against these mighty gods? Remember what they did to the Egyptians? And that was 500 years earlier. 
This is our God. Let them be the judges. What can their gods do? What can Zeus do? What can Aphrodite do? What can Hercules do? Listen, we don't even need God for their Hercules. Samson would take their Hercules and break him like a pencil. He'd put Hercules in his hand and snap it like a pencil. They don't even have a God. Oh, I love that verse. Their rock is not as our rock, even our enemies themselves being judges. What did the magicians of Pharaoh... Now, who had the deepest contact with the supernatural in the land of Egypt? The magicians of Pharaoh. When Moses had got to about plague four, what did they tell Pharaoh? This is the finger of God. We can't do it. This is the finger of God. Oh, we, we need to have a, a, a tornado on the scale that's a, a number six. Now that's got to have a minimum airspeed of 260 miles an hour. You ain't read about one. 260 minimum to be a number six. And what is the scientific nickname for a number six? The finger of God. That's our God. Amen. They don't even know who they're talking about when they call it a finger of God. That's just that's like, like the, an, an act of God. You know, in quotation marks, an act of God. Thy God reigneth, brethren. Amen. Thy God reigneth. And He reigns out there in the whirlwind. Do you remember what was talking to Job in chapters 38 through the end of the chapter? God was talking to Job from a... a what is a whirlwind? A tornado. Oh, yes. God was speaking to Job out of a tornado. No wonder He said, I don't have anything else to say. I repent in dust and ashes. Let's repent in dust and ashes. Let's not bark against anything He does. Oh, Lord, we bless You and praise You. Look at Job 40. Let's get the words of the Lord. Those were the words of the Lord through Moses. That was a song. I never sang that one in Sunday school. I was singing, Do Lord. And this little light of mine. Anybody remember those? Can you imagine singing the song of Moses in Sunday school? What would you learn in Sunday school today, boys and girls? About God's arrows being drunk with blood. When the Bible says, the Lord is my light, I'm thinking of this little light of mine. I know those words, this little light of mine is Matthew chapter 5. You're the light of the world, but the Lord is my light. And it's capital L-O-R-D. It's the Lord Jehovah. He's my light. He he shines through everything. Job 40. Maybe some of you liked Deuteronomy 32. How about these words? I lift my hand to heaven and I swear I live forever. There's one being that can say that. He is independent of all other beings and God says that. When I whet my glittering sword, things are going to happen. You know, is there anything in there that you like? Let's go for another one. I only see sixes popping up on your cards. Job 40, verse 1. Moreover the Lord, moreover means chapters 38 and 39 were also from the Lord. Moreover the Lord answered Job and said, 
Shall he that contendeth with the Almighty instruct him? Now who's contending with God? Job is contending. Job is fighting the Lord about the Lord's mistreatment of him. The Lord hasn't mistreated you ever. No matter what he does. Shall he that contendeth with the Almighty... I'm sorry that I can't get past a clause. When it says Almighty... Does, do you know what that tells you about contending with Him? When, it, when He's described as Almighty, it means you lose. That's right. Because He's Almighty, you lose. Right. Shall he that contendeth with the Almighty instruct Him? He that reproveth God, let him answer it. Say something, Job. Then Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I am vile. Brethren, let's have that attitude. Do you have that attitude with me right now? I am vile. What shall I answer thee? I will lay mine hand upon my mouth. Once have I spoken, but I will not answer. Yea, twice. Yes, Lord, I've been babbling, but I will proceed no further. Then answered the Lord unto Job out of the whirlwind and said, Gird up thy loins now like a man. I will demand of thee and declare thou unto me. Wilt thou also disannul my judgment? Wilt thou condemn me, that thou mayest be righteous? Hast thou an arm like God? Or canst thou thunder with a voice like Him? Deck thyself now with majesty and excellency, and array thyself with glory and beauty. Cast abroad the rage of thy wrath, and behold every one that is proud, and abase him. Look on every one that is proud and bring him low, and tread down the wicked in their place. Hide them in the dust together, and bind their faces in secret. Then will I also confess unto thee that thine own right hand can save thee. That is how our God talks. That is how our God talks to the most righteous man on earth. Do you like that kind of conversation? Or is it too hard? Is it too harsh? I know God whispers gently and has your tears in His bottle in Psalm 56, but I'm not in Psalm 56. And I don't really want to think about tears in a bottle right now. I want to think about being vile and there being a God in heaven that is holy who addresses His most holy servant Job this way. Why are you fighting me? Why are you contending with me? Do you think that you're going to make yourself righteous and condemn me as wicked? Show me your ability to deck yourself with glory and majesty and to look like a God in the universe. Show me that you can take Nebuchadnezzars and put them down in the dust and all those that walk in pride, you're able to abase them. Now, if you're able to do those things, I will give you credit that you're able to save yourself. That's our God. Delight in Him today with me. Isaiah 40. Isaiah 40. You know, I say Isaiah 40 and I see nines go up and I haven't even started to read. Oh Lord, we love all of your word. And we're thankful that we can read some of these passages at one time and they don't speak to us as powerfully at other times. But we are asking thee that thy word would always speak powerfully to us. Lord, forgive us for being dull of heart and dull of mind and neglecting your word. Help us to delight in it. Isaiah 40. Now, brethren, do not get bored as I read longer passages. Stay with it. Focus. 
Verse 18. Isaiah 40. Verse 18. To whom then will ye liken God? Or what likeness will ye compare unto him? The workman melteth the graven image, and the goldsmith spreadeth it over with gold, and casteth silver chains. He that is so impoverished that he hath no oblation chooseth a tree that will not rot. That's a hardwood. He seeketh unto him a cunning workman to prepare a graven image that shall not be moved. Have ye not known? Have ye not heard? Hath it not been told you from the beginning? Have ye not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he that sitteth upon the circle of the earth, and the inhabitants thereof are as grasshoppers, that stretcheth out the heavens as a curtain, and spreadeth them out as a tent to dwell in, that bringeth the princes to nothing, He maketh the judges of the earth as vanity. Yea, they shall not be planted. Yea, they shall not be sown. Yea, their stock shall not take root in the earth. And he shall also blow upon them, and they shall wither, and the whirlwind shall take them away as stubble. (laughs) To whom then will ye liken me? Or shall I be equal, saith the Holy One? Lift up your eyes on high, and behold... Who hath created these things that bringeth out their host by number? He calleth them all by names by the greatness of his might. For that he is strong in power, not one faileth. What is that 26th verse about? The stars. It's his power that sustains them so that not one fails. He calls them all by names, and He has the number of them. And all you have to do is lift up your eyes on high, and a sermon is preached. To whom then will ye liken me? I love this God. Do you love this God with me? And do you hate everyone that mocks Him? The Charles Darwins of this world? Who want to get rid of a Creator God? The Stephen Hawkings? The Bill Nyes? This is our God. Thy God reigneth, brethren. I love verse... Of course, I love verse 18. To whom then will ye liken me? In verse 25, he repeats it. I think he likes those words. If he likes those words, I like those words. But in verse 20... In verse uh, 19, he's got someone that's got some bucks. Okay? They're able to get a graven image designed for them, made it of gold and silver. But the guy in verse 20, he ain't got no bucks. He that is so impoverished that he hath no oblation, he's got to go out to the woods and cut himself down a hardwood tree. You know, you don't want a softwood tree because it's going to rot. You want a hardwood. So he brings a hardwood and he gets some guy to carve him up a Nez Pierce, Indians, totem pole. Carve him up himself a totem pole that uh, it won't be able to move and it'll be stuck in one place because it's going to be a tree trunk that's too heavy to haul around easily. Have ye not known? And he asks four questions there in verse 21. Haven't you picked up anything that there is a God of an entirely different sort somewhere? How in the world could you fashion a totem pole and think that it's the God that sitteth upon the circle of the earth? To whom then will you liken me? 
we don't liken him to anything. He was very careful with Moses that he never gave Israel an image because they would have copied that image and worshipped it. He, He communicated himself by words. Do you remember when Moses said, show me thy glory? Remember? Yes. Show me thy glory, Exodus 32. He got the 33. He got the glory shown to him in 34. What was it? Words. The Lord, the Lord God, great in mercy and long suffering, forgiving sin, and so forth. That's the glory of God. Yes. So that there is no image, because what image would we make for the invisible God? but he sits upon the circle of the earth and the inhabitants thereof are as grasshoppers. He stretcheth out the heavens like a curtain and spreadeth them out as a tent to dwell in. He brings the princes of this world to nothing. Don't you let the princes or presidents, the Congress or the justices disturb your tranquility and equilibrium. There is a God in heaven and he is higher than the highest. And he regards everything that they are doing. You say, why is he taking so long to judge them? Do you know that sometimes he takes long so that they can accrue more sins so that he can be justified in greater wrath? Do you remember why Israel had to spend 400 years in servitude in Canaan and then in Egypt? Because he said the sins of the Amorites are not yet full. I need to let them get up to the level where I can justify annihilating them, man, woman, and child. Does that kind of long-suffering bode well for America? No. So that you can see the verse. Holding your hand there at Isaiah 40, look at Ecclesiastes chapter 5. Ecclesiastes chapter 5. One of the one of the great ways that the sovereignty of God should comfort us is when we look at civil government. And if you look or you read much right now about our civil government, there is a lot that is perplexing and there is a lot that is downright angering. However, thy God reigneth. And he will bring the princes of this world to nothing. You had read to you about Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar is the only king in the Bible called King of Kings. Because Nebuchadnezzar was the golden head of that image of the four great kingdoms of the world. He was the greatest king. And yet look at what the Lord did to him. The prophet of God, a eunuch, stood there and told Nebuchadnezzar, Break off thy sins by righteousness and show mercy to the poor if there might be a lengthening of thy tranquility. Those words came flying forth out of Daniel's humble, respectful, obedient mouth. And 12 months later, Nebuchadnezzar had not paid attention to them, and he was cut down to the ground by the watchers. There are watchers operating in Washington, D.C. Don't you ever forget it. Don't let it move you. And don't waste your time reading too much of it. It's not profitable. There's no profit in reading that junk. No one in the past was ever able to read what was going on in their government until it was long past. But in Ecclesiastes 5.8, If thou seest the oppression of the poor, whether that's the 1.5 million babies that are killed every year by abortion, this week, did a Democrat come out and say that babies ought to be able to be aborted right up until their due date? Did anybody? 
If thou seest the oppression of the poor and violent perverting of judgment and justice in a province, marvel not at the matter. Don't marvel that they're getting away with something. Don't marvel that the world is so bad God can't even control it. Just please. Marvel not at the matter, for he that is higher than the highest regardeth, and there be higher than they. They may act like they're the highest, that they're able to legislate prayer out of our schools, the Bible out of our schools, the Ten Commandments out of our schools, but there is higher than the highest. Marvel not at the matter. Rejoice that you know him. Back to Isaiah chapter 40. Isaiah 40 and verse 23, that bringeth the princes to nothing. He maketh the judges of the earth as vanity. Think of any, Sennacherib, was he a great king? The king of the Assyrian might, capital at Nineveh. Oh, wait till I read Nahum chapter 1. The burden of Nineveh. Oh, when the Bible says the burden of something or someone or some place, some city or some nation, it's a terrible short sentence because it's God's judgment coming upon them. He bringeth the princes. What happened to Sennacherib? He opened his mouth against the God of Israel. The God of Israel answered back and said, The virgin daughter of Zion hath laughed thee to scorn. 185,000 dead battle-hardened soldiers. He goes back and falls down in the house of Nisroch, his God, and asks, Nisroch, what went wrong out there? And his sons come in and kill him. That is our God and the virgin daughter of Israel laughed him to scorn. He bringeth the princes to nothing. The princes of this earth stood up, Pilate and Herod, against the Lord Jesus Christ and what happened to Israel first and then Rome second. What happened to King Saul? There's no one that resists our God. And so as you read down through this passage, you want to realize that none of them can be planted. They can't be sown. Their stock shall not take root in the earth, but God will blow upon them and blow them away as stubble. Praise the Lord. We love you, Holy Father in heaven. Chapter 43. You know, when you go to the, when you go to Isaiah 40s, you're in fertile territory. It is good soil. The whole Bible is. Don't anybody take me, misunderstand me. When you're looking for the passages of Scripture where God brags about Himself, it is Isaiah 41 through 48. They are unique chapters. They're wonderful chapters. They're rich. Verse 8 of Isaiah 43. Bring forth the blind people that have eyes and the deaf that have ears. Let all the nations be gathered together and let the people be assembled. Who among them can declare this and show us former things? Let them bring forth their witnesses that they may be justified. Or let them hear and say, it is truth. Ye are my witnesses, saith the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, that ye may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me there was no God formed, neither shall there be after me. I, even I, am the Lord, and beside me there is no Savior. I have declared and have saved, and I have showed when there was no strange God among you, 
Therefore ye are my witnesses, saith the Lord, that I am God. Amen. Yea, before the day was, I am He. And there is none that can deliver out of my hand. I will work, and who shall let it? Who shall allow it? Who shall permit it? I will work, and no one is going to stop me. He is saying there in verse 13. Now he is appealing to the greatest proof of the divine inspiration of the Bible, and he is appealing to the greatest evidence of a God. And that is the God's ability to forecast the future, to prophesy the future, and to bring it to pass. And what he is saying here is, get the whole congregation together. All you people with all your ideas about new gods, come together and show us when your gods foretold the future. Because I foretold the future when you didn't have any strange gods among you, and it's coming to pass, therefore you should know this is truth. Fulfilled prophecy. When I wrote you on Friday, in Genesis 3.15 is a prophecy that is fulfilled within the pages of Scripture. The woman's seed will bruise your head, and you'll bruise his heel. A prophecy of the Lord Jesus Christ, fulfilled in the New Testament. In Genesis chapter 16 and verse 12, it says that the descendants of Ishmael, and do you, do you know who claims Ishmael as their father? It's the Arabs. Every man's hand is going to be against every other man. They're going to be fighting always forever. Genesis 16, 12. We see the fulfillment of that in human history since the, the time of the Arabs. And it's still true today. Right. Then we go to Romans chapter 1, and we see all this proliferation of transgenders, transvestites, and sodomites. And we have Romans 1, verses 18 through 32, where God says very plainly, when you reject honoring me as the creator, and you worship and serve the creature more than the creator, and you are not thankful, and you reject the without excuse knowledge that is revealed in the heavens, I will rewire your minds to do perverse, abominable, profane things among yourselves, to dishonor your own bodies among yourselves. Never in the history of the world has there been the ability and now the popularity of dishonoring their own bodies. It is fulfillment of prophecy. Look at Jeremiah 10. Before we break, Jeremiah 10. Jeremiah 10 is one of the places where some appeal, and we appeal carefully, to condemn Christmas because the first few verses about learning the way of the heathen and the customs of the people are vain. And it's it's talking about their silver and their gold in verse 4. They're upright like palm trees. Their versions of totem poles, their, their idols created with wood and covered over with silver and gold, and so forth, down through verse 9. It describes where they get the silver from, where the gold comes from, the different names of the workmen that are involved in the project, and so forth. I want verse 10. But, but is an inspired disjunctive against those nine verses about idolatry. But the Lord is the true God. But the Lord is the true God. He is the living God and an everlasting King. Amen. At His wrath, the earth shall tremble and the nations shall not be able to abide His indignation. Amen. Thus shall ye say unto them, 
The gods that have not made the heavens and the earth, even they shall perish from the earth and from under these heavens. He hath made the earth by his power. He hath established the world by his wisdom and hath stretched out the heavens by his discretion. When he uttereth his voice, there is a multitude of waters in the heavens and he causeth the vapors to ascend from the ends of the earth. He maketh lightnings with rain and bringeth forth the wind out of his treasures. Every man is brutish in his knowledge. Every founder is confounded by the graven image. For his molten image is falsehood, and there is no breath in them. They are vanity and the work of errors. In the time of their visitation, they shall perish. The portion of Jacob is not like them. For he is the former of all things, and Israel is the rod of his inheritance. The Lord of hosts is his name. Amen Amen and amen. The portion of Jacob is not like them. Our God is not like them. God is our portion. The Lord Jehovah is our portion. He is not like them. Our God made the heavens and the earth and brings the rain out of his treasures. They are all brutish. They have no knowledge. And when God visits Babylon and when God visits Assyria, the enemies of Israel, their gods will perish in that day, according to verse 15. What a difference between our God and their God. Even thinking about his creative sovereignty in creating the universe, it's something that our God did and none of theirs did. Their gods can't create anything. There is no breath in them. They can't even move. They can't do anything. No matter what anatomical feature you give them, their eyes cannot see, their ears cannot hear, their feet cannot move. They must be carried about. And the Lord says, everyone that worships them and everyone that forms them is like unto them. Deaf, dumb, and stupid. The glory of our God. And what all of this is to do is to bring us in holy humility before His ridicule and mocking of men and of false gods to humble ourselves before the true and living God that is ours. He reigns. Let's humble ourselves before Him and obey Him and serve Him and our days will be filled with prosperity and with pleasure, whether that be of a natural sort, a spiritual sort, or both. May the Lord bless us to obey this God and to love Him, to acquaint ourselves now with Him and be at peace, and thereby good shall come unto us. May the Lord bless the preaching of His Word.